welcome to what if i say yes how are you today oh i'm fine thank you thank you for having me um, i'm excited to be part of your podcast thank you thank you for coming okay so let's begin with uh, you telling my audience who are you Ah, well, that there's a loaded question, right? Um, I am a daughter. I'm a sister. I'm a, a wife. I'm a mother of three kids. Um, I am a recreational therapist by trade. I, uh, and I'm an educator in many of my, my roles, my professional roles. Okay. And now tell the audience how we know each other. Uh, well, we have the pleasure of being brought together through our children, uh, which is the way I know so many great people in, in Ithaca. Um, your daughter, Maya, and my daughter, Sadie, uh, I think met in sixth grade. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like they, they came together um, through classes, but also through a musical that they, they were in. So that was, uh, that was fun. And um, yeah, so... I remember um, there was a play date or something. I had to drop my off at your home. Mm -hmm. And then when I, so we said hello very quickly, but when I went to pick her up, my up, we were in the back and you were showing me something that you wanted to do with um, tiles. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I'm very curious to find out if you finished that project. <laughs> yes, that project is partially finished. We got a great start to it. The, we were making a mosaic on a retaining wall that we had built out of um, uh, cinder blocks that were not very attractive. So we, uh, <laughs> we try to reuse and repurpose materials to save money and um you know, not add more to the environment. So we were, we had a lot of beautiful plates and uh, cracked mugs and tiles that people had, um, that we had collected and people had given to us. So yeah, we created a beautiful uh, rainbow mosaic on one of the walls and we're working on two more. So, and it's been oh. a fun, creative project for the whole family get, to get involved with. And I remember when, when you picked Maya up, um, we were, we got to talking and we, you probably stayed an hour and it was really fun to get to know you. And, and I think Maya was happy to have a little more time on the trampoline. Yes. <laughs> She's into gymnastics. So whatever she can jump and do flips and turn around and do something. She's yeah. very happy. Yes. <laughs> okay, Molly. So once we've established all this, um, let's jump right into the main question of this space when was a moment in your life when you asked the question what if I say yes you then said yes and you did something well yeah the, one of the the examples that um, rises to the top for me is uh, when I was 20 Four, and I had just met my now husband, um, David, and we were uh, we were working together at a, um, a rehabilitation center and school for kids with multiple disabilities in New Hampshire. And he had just started there, and 
And we came together pretty quickly. And um, one of the things he said to me really early on in our, our relationship, our dating, was um, he said, I've always wanted to do the Peace Corps. Um, and it's something that he had pursued right after um, he graduated um, with his undergrad. And his advisor said, you know, Peace Corps will be there. Wait until you go on and get your master's because that's something he needed for his his field. Um, and so it had been something he'd been thinking about for a long time. And I had actually not thought of at all. But he said, you know, now is the time in my life, I really feel like I want to do this. And would you consider doing this with me? And so that was that was a time where, you know, I didn't really actually have to contemplate that long. It, you know, it really fit in with who I was and and I enjoy change. I enjoy adventure. We didn't have any um, thing really holding us back or tying us down. And so I, I said, yes, I would love to do that together. Um, and so we began the process of applying. Uh, yeah. And in that process, we realized that we actually had to be married to do it as a couple. They do not allow... Um, uh, people who are just in relationships um, because they uh, don't want you to get there and find, you know, your relationship isn't working out and, <laughs> you know, that's going to affect your, your Peace Corps commitment and service. So um, not only do you need to be married, you had to have been living together for at least a year before you go, because again, they want to make sure you're compatible and not finding out that you can't live together when you're in another country. Um, so yeah, so that was the impetus actually for us to get married. We said, oh All my right, goodness, let's do it. We got married and, and we had been living together for a while and um, we started the application process and the, the process to apply back then in 2000 um, was a full year. Uh, so, um, you know, a we full year to, to apply. Yep. The whole process, the application process took a year mm -hmm. before we, before we go into detail, explain what the Peace Corps is for people outside this country, for people who are not familiar with it. Sure. Um, so it's a governmental organization, um, that was founded in the sixties. I should know the exact date, but it's escaping me now. Um, and uh, President um, Kennedy had um, started it as a response to, um, you know, as another way to reach out and provide support um, to other countries. Um, so the program was a way for, for um, U.S. citizens to get involved in um, aiding and supporting uh, other countries in need without serving in the military. So. Mm -hmm. um, it, yeah, so it was a way for people to say, I want to serve my country, I want to help other countries. Um, and so it's funded by the government. Um, and uh, it's a two year commitment mm -hmm. um, to serve in another country. The application process is, is it's probably changed a little bit since 2000, because we've got a lot more technology now, but um, <laughs> they it's a, a rigorous process because they want to make sure that your mental health and your physical health are stable um, because many times you're serving in countries where you don't have access to good health care and you may be isolated mm -hmm. 
many people will have to learn another language depending on where you go. Um, so the interview process, which we did together, um, you have an opportunity to um, talk about what you're interested in, areas, you know, work areas, countries that you might like to go, but really, ultimately, you don't have a choice. <laughs> they decide and they'll offer you um, uh, an appointment somewhere and you can choose to accept it or decline. I'm not sure if you decline, you know, how many more opportunities you have. Um, but we, so in our, in our interviews, we, um, just emphasized a couple things. One, we did not want to go to a country where, um, as a married couple, uh, as a woman, I was not able to go out without, um, David with me and, uh, I'm, I'm pretty independent and I just felt like that wasn't going to work for me. <laughs> so that eliminated a lot of countries for us or some, some placements. Um, and then we also, David's in speech language pathology. And so we wanted to be in a country, um, where he, we spoke English. Um, so again, that narrowed it down for us. Um, and yeah, so we ended up, um, being offered a placement in uh, Grenada in the Eastern Caribbean, mm -hmm. uh, in the West Indies. It's the southernmost island in the Eastern Caribbean chain. It's just above Trinidad and Tobago and on the same latitude as Venezuela. Um, so we were we were there for two months, or sorry, um, two years. Yep, yeah, two years, but we were there an additional three months. Usually it's three to six months of training um, beforehand that does not count towards your two years of service and that training, the length of the training depends on where you're going and if you need to learn another language. So the training's longer if you're having language immersion. Um, for us, it was short. It was, it was three months. So is that include, is that part of the, the one year application process? So it's the one nope. year to let you know whether you have a placement or not, and then uh, you get the training. Yeah, let's see. It was about a full year, the application process from when we applied, like submitted our initial application to when we left. Um, okay. So yeah, and then the the three months and then our two years service on top of that. So and what is it that you did over there? Yeah, so um <laughs> So Peace Corps, they'll tell you, they'll give you your, your country placement and assignment of what they think you'll be doing. Um, so I was assigned to work with the Ministry of, of Youth Services, and um, they, they said I was going to be working with youth um, and possibly with HIV and AIDS education, because um, there's a, there was a large problem on the islands at that time um, around you know, educating people uh, with AIDS and, and HIV. Um, and so that was my assignment. And then David was assigned to the Ministry of Education to work um, with the schools for special education on the island. So we arrived and I actually ended up working in the Ministry of Social Services with the Homes for the Aged on the island. So <laughs> I went from thinking I was gonna be working with youth for the two years and I had, you know, sneakers and shorts and all kinds of, you know, just clothing that I thought I'd be running. I'm a recreational therapist. So, you know, I thought, okay, I'm going to be running team building activities and outdoor education and all that. 
Um, and instead, I was working with the ministry, which is very proper. People dress up and, um, you know, it's a governmental organization. So that's, that's <laughs> and I was working with the nursing homes and the homes for the age. So it was kind of the other extreme. Um, so, yeah. Did you have to buy new, new clothing? Um, I did. I, and that wasn't easy on an Island. Um, and I had things sent and we, and a lot of people have things made and tailored. Um, so, so we, I had some suits made, but, uh, yeah, so I ended up and and my, my assignment was very vague. Um, the reason I was placed, my assignment was switched was because our, our country director, who was a local Grenadian, um, she had seen on my resume that I was a recreational therapist. She knew there was a shortage of any healthcare therapists, occupational, physical speech. And so she, and she had a mother who was in one of the homes for the aged and knew that they just didn't have a lot of services. And so, um, she just kind of said, great, you know, this'll be your assignment. And I didn't know what, I didn't have any guidance on what I was supposed to be doing, um, so I actually spent my first, I don't know, it was probably like two or three months, um, in the ministry in this cubicle where the, the walls only came up to here. So you could look across the whole room and, you know, see everybody. And I was right next to the, the printer station. And so I spent two months fixing, troubleshooting the printer for people <laughs> and, te and teaching myself how to type because I never officially learned how to type. So, yeah, so, you know, and trying to figure out who, you know, my supervisor, there were two um, officers, they called them for the entire um, island, which uh, is just under a hundred thousand people. Um, there were two officers that worked in the, in the elderly, you know, the senior um, uh, um, portion of, of social services. And so, um, the, the one, one of them would take me around and tour me to some of the homes, but he didn't have any guidance for me. He didn't, you know, he, they didn't really pay too much attention to that, that, um, population, unfortunately. So he wasn't like, oh, we need this or that. It was kind of like, Okay, hop in the car. I'll show you where they are around the island, and then that was it. <laughs> so go so back. That was two to three months. Yeah, yeah. And so during that time, um, you know, Peace Corps uh, has um, so a few things that they really uh, hone in on and want us to focus on is one um, sustainability. So anything that we did over those two years, which sounded like a long time at the beginning, but just was a blink of an eye. Mm -hmm. um, so anything we did needed to have a component of sustainability so that we could think about when we're gone, because we're coming and going, mm -hmm. how are the locals going to be able to, you know, be impacted by what work I'm doing and continue some of that. Mm -hmm. um, so that was one. And then the, the other piece was they taught us how to really do um, thorough community mapping. And that was a skill that I found extremely valuable because I spent time um, just seeking out what, who, and what organizations have anything to do with the elderly and the island, um, and really doing a needs assessment as well. Like what you know, I what what am I observing? Um, 
you know, what, do, what resources do they have? What resources can we draw upon? Mm -hmm. um, and, and who would be the partners in all of this? Who, who do I need to network with? So I really learned a lot about, you know, what other organizations, either non-governmental or government organizations, um, you know, were connected with Homes for the Aged. Um, so those two pieces, the community mapping and that idea of sustainability really, um, helped guide my time there. Um, yeah. Let's go back really quick to, um, can you define what is a recreational therapist? Sure. I thought you might ask that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So a, a recreational therapist, um, base essentially uses um, recreation as a modality to work on individual goals for people. So those goals may be um, around mental health, they may be around physical health, they may be socially motivated. Um, so if, if uh, I'll, I'll use an example. So if somebody's working on a, a physical goal, say they've had a spinal cord injury, and they um, you know, are, are learning to live with just using their upper body. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so they would be learning how to use a wheelchair, learning how to transfer, um, you know, strength building and upper body. A recreational therapist would come in and say, okay, let's learn how to do functional transfers, um, say from your wheelchair to a bi-ski or mono-ski or into the pool or, you know, something that would add to quality of life for someone and um, allow them to continue to be active in life. Mm -hmm. um, so I've worked with a lot of people with brain injuries, spinal cord injuries. I do a lot of outdoor recreation activities. So I teach adaptive skiing. Um, I work with people with cognitive and intellectual disabilities in that capacity. So it might be looking at how do we shift um, our teaching strategies to be able to work with somebody who might have some processing issues, um, might ha not have the safety awareness due to you know being on the autism spectrum. So it's considering the person and then looking at what their goals are, what their interests are, and finding ways to get them engaged um, in in life through uh, through recreation and leisure. So. By the time you had your core Peace Corps assignment, you already had that degree? I had that degree and I'd been working for two years. Um, so that was, was it two years? No, it would have been longer than that. It would have been three years I would have been working. Um, so how much of that did you end up doing in the island? A lot, actually. Yeah. yeah so, so what I found was there were a couple um, areas that I could start to hone in on that would be sustainable. One of them was the networking aspect. There were um, there were nine different nursing homes on the island, and they all operated independently. Some were government run, some were nonprofit run by churches. Um, but they were very, very different, and there was no standard of care throughout the different homes. So I found that um, by creating a networking group, 
um, where the different, they call them matrons, um, but the directors of the homes would come together and have an opportunity to learn what the other homes were doing. Mm -hmm. That was one role that I played was a connector and facilitated that. And then through that, we were able to um, find out what they needed, what, what was a commonality across the homes that they needed. And one of the, one of the needs was um, most of the staff, they called them caregivers, that worked at the homes only had an elementary school education. Um, the, the educational system in Grenada was a British system. And so in order to get to secondary school, you had to pass an exam. And a lot of people couldn't pass that exam. And so if you don't pass the exam, you don't have an opportunity to go to high school um, mm -hmm. or secondary school. So uh, the the caregivers were very, um, you know, passionate about their role as caregivers, but they didn't have much education. So they were hungry for it. They wanted that training, they wanted more training, they wanted more education, and they wanted to be recognized for what they were doing. Um, so I was able to get a, a, a grant, a USAID grant, and then also have a local match um, through the government to uh, offer um, a training program for all of the caregivers across the island, and actually an additional island, Kariaku, one of the Grenadine Islands, had two nursing homes. So we had can't remember the total number of um, participants in this training program, but it was a two-week training program, and we it was we had to um, stagger it. So we offered, I want to say, five different two-week programs, mm -hmm. so that we didn't take all of the caregivers from one of the homes at a time. You know, so <laughs> would come from each home. They'd come, you know, they'd come as a pair from their home, representing whichever home they were at and come together with all the other um, home, two from each home, and then they would go through this training course together. So, um, and the training course covered all sorts of things. We talked about transfers, keeping, you know, proper body mechanics so they could stay safe. We talked about how to um, create programs at their homes that, you know, tapped into what their residents were interested in, culture. Um, we did some examples, we did programs, I'd pair up with a local orphanage that another Peace Corps volunteer was working at. And we um, ran a scavenger hunt that was um, based on bush medicine. So because a lot of the people in the homes, the nursing homes had that knowledge of um, bush medicine and the younger generation didn't. So we used that as an educational experience to teach the kids an intergenerational experience to pair them up. And they did a scavenger hunt to identify different types of bush medicine. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, we brought a lot of program. I did bring a lot of recreational programming in, but I also focused on other aspects as well. Um, yeah, so. And so at the end of those two years, is it your responsibility to make sure, like, how do you make sure that whatever you did continues? It's your responsibility. It's it's you and the people you were working with. It's only the people in Grenada. Like who who takes care of these not going away? Yeah, 
Well, that's so that's up to the individual Peace Corps volunteer to create something again that is sustainable that comes from the locals. You know, a lot of times um, when people hear, you know, when people sign up for the Peace Corps, they think, okay, here I am. I'm coming to save the world. I'm coming to give these people who don't have what we have in our country, um, you know, my knowledge and my expertise. But it really needs to come from the local people. So um, for sustainability with the things that I was working on, some of the stuff I'm sure is not happening in it anymore. Um, but the networking group, that's why that I felt was kind of a key piece because it would engage the locals that were at that, that managerial leadership um, level and hope that that was something that was valuable enough to them to continue after I was gone. And I know that I'm sure it, a lot of it comes down to the people you know, that are involved. So, you know, here too, uh, you know, if, if you've got that champion, if you've got that person that's really passionate and really values something, then they will continue to make it happen and hopefully get enough people around them and keep the momentum going. But if you don't have those people anymore in the picture, then oftentimes things, you know, fall by the wayside. And um, so hopefully, you know, last I had heard the networking group was still continuing, but it was really two of the matrons that were spearheading it. So once they retire, you know, I don't know, um, hopefully they see enough value that others will continue it. Um, but yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing that we can really put into place where we say, okay, there's always going to be a Peace Corps volunteer continuing in, you know, in my place to make sure that these things still happen. Mm -hmm. just, um, I, I will say to answer, you know, another example of, of helping that sustainability piece, um, David worked at the Ministry of, of Education, mm -hmm. and when he came in, they saw he was a speech therapist, so they wanted him to do individual treatment with um, students, and he said, that's not sustainable, mm -hmm. so he instead focused his work on um, helping put into place um, at the ministry an officer for the special education schools. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a way for him to help create a piece that would be sustainable beyond his service. So it's not coming in and trying to solve specific issues with specific people. It's creating systems, mm -hmm. have, having the buy-in from the people got it and yeah. then okay two questions one that has to do with the before and one that has to do with the after so before I'm very curious to find out why the Peace Corps doesn't know very clearly what your assignment will be when like is that a lack of communication between them is that how the philosophy is there like it doesn't have to be the specific like why that gap between what they thought you could do and what you ended up doing. And the second question regarding the after the program, do you get evaluated? Is there something at the end that gives information to Peace Corps about your two years and what needs to be done afterwards? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so to answer your, your first question, I think 
that there, in some cases, there's not a disconnect. In some cases, there's organizations. So uh, local organizations need, in country, need to request to have a Peace Corps volunteer. So mm -hmm. some organizations have been doing that for years and years and years and know how they want to utilize that, that volunteer, what that means to have a Peace Corps volunteer. And then there's a lot of organizations that have no idea what the Peace Corps is and what mm -hmm. a volunteer would bring to them. So it's up to the country director, um, who is usually a local person, mm -hmm. to help educate uh, local organizations on how um, they could utilize a Peace Corps volunteer. So in this, in my um, experience, the, the Ministry of Social Services had never had a Peace Corps volunteer. So they didn't really oh. know what it was all about. And so in this case, the country director knew how a Peace Corps volunteer could be valuable to them. Mm -hmm. um, but so she she kind of used us a little bit as she said, okay, you know, they're not requesting a volunteer, but I know it could be useful. So I'm going to shift this volunteer into this space mm -hmm. um, based on what my individual resume looked like. So she may not have done that for somebody who was fresh out of college and didn't have any work experience, but she knew that there could be a, a possibility of success and putting somebody who had work experience mm -hmm. into this role. Um, yeah. So I think that it, it varies. Sometimes organizations know there's not a disconnect, but, but oftentimes, you know, like she didn't know who I was. She was just going off of my resume. So mm -hmm. I think a lot of times, you know, an individual gets there and they think they're going to be doing one thing because it seemed to match but their skill set maybe is a little different and would be more useful in another capacity. Mm -hmm. uh, and then your the the other question you had about evaluation. So all Peace Corps are required to do an exit interview um, mm -hmm. when we're leaving. So there's an opportunity to share what worked, what didn't, um, you know, what we hope continues. Uh, you know, if if we feel that our assignment would benefit from having another volunteer in it. Um, so yeah, the exit interview is the opportunity for it. And I don't, I don't really remember feeling like they were evaluating me. It was more an opportunity to share, you know, just more about my experience and mm -hmm. yeah, make recommendations. Do you remember what didn't work? <laughs> Whoa, there's a lot that didn't work. I mean, uh, um, so it didn't work that I was falling into this role of fixing printers. I mean, and they were happy. The ministry was happy to have me do that. You know, they, um, it was a need, an immediate need. And it was really just like erasing the queue of like 50, you know, people who had just kept sending jobs to the printers and jammed it up. Um, so, you know, that. I, I realized I really needed to be very self-directed to figure <laughs> out what it was that, you know, where I could be most useful and not necessarily go on what they were asking me to do. Um, because again, they hadn't had a volunteer before and I don't think they really uh, knew what the potential was or how to utilize um, my skills. Um, the other thing that for me really didn't work. So I, 
I grew up in, in New England, in Massachusetts. It's a very fast paced uh, society there. I mean, it's like, you know, people show up to meetings on time. We, you know, try to really be efficient with our time. And I was now in a culture that was island time. You know, people slowed down. Nobody got to meetings on time. But, you know, if it rained, pretty much it came to a standstill. People just found shelter. They weren't trying to like continue to get to where they needed to be, rush, rush, rush. So for me, I really had to adjust my expectations and my the speed at which I got things done. Um, everything takes longer there. Uh, people just weren't as, you know, feeling as urgent about getting things done as, as I was feeling. And they didn't necessarily have that drive for productivity. Um, mm -hmm. I felt that I only had two years to get things done. <laughs> you know, I had to get it done. But uh, I, I would show up to meetings and be the only one there for the first half hour. And then people would show up and then people would fall asleep, like right in front of me. And, and I was just, so for me, that that adjusting to a different type of culture and not taking offense to it. You know, I was now in a culture where people came right out with talking about appearance. If I had a pimple, it would no doubt be pointed out to me multiple times that day. If I gained a little weight, that would be pointed out to me, you know, so I had to like kind of have a tougher skin and, and, and not take offense to things. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. So now looking back, what are the skills? I mean, you mentioned one, the, the community mapping, but what are the skills and, or the life experiences that you took from those two years and ran with them um, in your professional and personal life once you came back? Yeah, one of the things that really stood out to me was how resource rich our country is, yet how blind we can be to that. You know, so I had worked previously at a um, residential school and a, a rehab facility, a physical rehab facility for people with brain injuries. And there, you know, we always felt like we didn't have enough. We didn't have enough resources. But after my experience in Grenada, I realized, wow, you know, it's really a matter of perspective. They really didn't have a lot of resources yet we figured out ways to make things happen on limited resources. Mm -hmm. And back in the United States, we kind of were in this, this mode of, oh, we need more, 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 rather than stepping back and going, how do we do more with what we have? Mm -hmm. um, and not always feel that like need for more. Um, so that I definitely carried over into my work. Um, and personal life too, for sure. I mean, I, I, you know, raising our kids, I, I feel like really one of our, um, you know, foundations is, is not to get greedy and not to, to feel like you need to, you know, have all these, these monetary resources. There's a lot of other resources. If you just take a step back and, and, and take a moment to, to look at what those other resources are and, 
you know, and how important things can be um, Mm -hmm. beyond just (laughs) the monetary uh, piece of things. So, yeah. And, and I think my kids as a result um, are, are pretty aware of um, not always, you know, asking for money to do things or feeling like that's, you know, they're entitled to that. They're, they're pretty good at uh, managing their own money and, and, and making it stretch. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now on a more personal level, mm-hmm. your marriage, how did those two years, um, make your marriage stronger what happened I mean it's it's not it's like a crash course on marriage and learning how to be together but um very different (laughs) so how did it help or not your marriage those few years yeah I I love that question because so we got married in March of 2001 and left for the Peace Corps in July of 2001. So that was in a sense, you know, our honeymoon. I mean, so, so um, to give you a little more information to throw a little wrench in it, we, so I broke my back two weeks before our wedding. Oh my goodness. And so um, we, it was tricky because so we actually withheld that information from the Peace Corps because my back healed quickly. It healed within eight weeks. I was very fortunate. I could still walk down the aisle. I had a back brace over, <laughs> over my dress, but I was able to walk. I wasn't, I wasn't paralyzed. Um, and I, my rehab, I was very diligent. And, and so it healed quickly, but mm-hmm. we withheld that because at one point during the application process, I had disclosed that I had been to therapy family therapy when I was like 10 or something. And they, that triggered something in the process where they did an in-depth like analysis of making sure I was mentally stable to go. So we had already kind of had that little hiccup, which really slowed things down. So we thought, okay, we're not going to say anything about the back. We're just going to make sure it heals because they're not going to let us go. And we're on track, you know, a couple months after we get married. So it healed. We left. And I think that, um, the, the whole Peace Corps experience really strengthened our marriage because, you know, we, we had been living together. So we knew, you know, what the ins and outs of, of that, but, Mm -hmm. um, I probably would have left the Peace Corps early if I hadn't been married. It was really, really important um, to have that support. And I saw a lot of other Peace Corps in our group volunteers that left early because, you know, they just didn't didn't have that support that David and I had as a married couple. Mm-hmm. Um, it It is very, there's a lot of challenges. The Eastern Caribbean has a 50% early um, uh, release rate where people leave before they complete their, their two years. Um, that's due to medical issues. Um, most of the older volunteers in the Peace Corps get placed in the Eastern Caribbean because it's easiest to get seek medical attention if needed. It's a quick, easy flight Mm -hmm. back to the U S. Um, so some people left for medical issues. Um, there was a lot 
there was a high rate of um, abuse. Uh, so a lot of uh, female volunteers left early. Um, it's a culture where, you know, there's catcalling all the time. There's, you know, just outward. I mean, here in this country, like, I just can't believe what people, what upsets people compared to like what we kind of had to endure there. So, um, you know, I think my tolerance level for (laughs) that harassment is probably higher than some people, but uh, yeah, harassment, a lot of people leave for that. Um, I couldn't stand the heat. Uh, For me, it was you know, I'm a cold weather person. So it was really, really hard to function in just a dry and wet season, but hot year round. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people, the isolation gets to them. Um, so for my relationship, for our marriage, it was really, um, it strengthened our marriage. I, I feel like we were really able to step up and support each other. Um, and I think we did more than other volunteers in terms of our service because we had each other to bounce ideas off of. Um, and, and that's big. It's, it's hard to navigate a really uh, loose um, professional path. And so a lot of Peace Corps volunteers felt like they weren't getting anywhere in what they, in their service and what they were supposed to be doing. Um, so they left early. They felt like it was, you know, not a good use of their time, but for David and I, we were able to reassess constantly and say, okay, you know, yeah, I think that might make sense to go this direction. And so we constantly had that support, uh, for each other. So I think, I think it was, yeah, I think it was a strengthener for our relationship. And it's interesting how, concern was the Peace Corps um, regarding your mental health, you, Mm -hmm. the volunteers, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't seem, at least at that point, they didn't seem to have um, a space and people to take care of your mental health of all the volunteers in place in the country. Like, it sounds like that was needed. (laughs) So that... The, the changing people and volunteers leaving didn't happen that often. They needed some kind of support. Mm-hmm. And I and I think that's probably why during the application process, they were so um, keyed into if people have mental health issues because there wasn't that support built in there. And there were, you had a team of, of um, administrators of the Peace Corps, through the Peace Corps that you know, you could talk to, but it wasn't at all geared towards counseling or mm-hmm. support or therapy. I'm wondering though, that may have changed with everything going virtual. You know, now Hopefully. there would be, yeah, a lot more access to those support services, mm-hmm. which we didn't have at that time. So, um, and it would be really great if they had more of that built in, because I think that is common um, amongst Peace Corps volunteers, especially people who are placed in, you know, more remote and isolated places. Mental health is is a big issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah. But at the time, there wasn't really anything. There was a, a local um, doctor, but it, it she didn't really address mental health. You know, <laughs> things have really changed a lot since 2001. Uh, as I'm talking, I'm realizing just in the in the mental health field, especially. 
Um, no, nowadays, I guess you could just uh, reach someone through Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Computer, not like a video call with someone and said, I'm going crazy with this placement. I don't right, know what right. to do. Yeah. Or yeah. communicate better or faster with more people in Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, it was good for your marriage. Yeah. You had three kids. <laughs> Do any of them or have any of them or are any of them considering doing the Peace Corps in the future? Well, I haven't heard any of them talk about it yet. I didn't really know much about the Peace Corps when I was their age. Um, I mean, they do because we did it, but we are actually taking the whole family to Grenada later this month. Um, and the only one of our three kids that's been is Eli. He's 17 now. Um, he went at six months old and a year and a half old. So he doesn't remember it. And the other two, Isaac and Sadie, had, have never had the opportunity to go. So this will be, this may be a, a trip that gets them thinking a little bit more. Um, we're having a reunion there with the other volunteers that we were there with. A number of them will be be there at the same time with their families. So I think that they're going to get a real inside look at, you know, what we were doing there, um, you know, what an example of what Peace Corps service looks like. And I wouldn't be surprised if if one of them did decide to go that route. Um, mm -hmm. It is limiting or not limiting, but there's a, there are windows of time in your life when you can serve and there's times when you can't, if you have any dependents, you cannot serve. Oh. Um, so it had to be before we had kids or after our kids are, mm -hmm. are independent. Um, so yeah, that, that, that kind of dictates a little bit, you know, when, when you're doing it. So you don't find a lot of Peace Corps volunteers in their, you know, thirties and forties, mm -hmm. um, unless they've chosen not to have kids or a family. Would you like that for them? Would you like one of them to have that experience or is just, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it's okay with you. And um, I mean, I, I it would be exciting. Uh, I, you know, I haven't really thought about that though. I kind of <laughs> feel like they'll find their path and, um, you know, whether it be, um, you know, traveling and exploring different countries or, you know, doing it through service. Um, I do know that when we were there, that was when I was first introduced to what a gap year was. I had never heard of a gap year. And we met a number of um, people from other countries, not the United States or Grenada, but doing gap years, Canada, England, you know, there are places, people from places that I think gap years are, were, you know, more, um, supported. And so I learned about a gap year and that now is something that I would really encourage all my kids to do. So they may end up in some sort of service during, during a gap year. Define um, what gap year is. Um, so a gap year is the time between when you graduate high school and if you've chosen to go on to college. So oftentimes people will apply to college um, right out of high school and then defer um, for a year and spend that year either doing volunteer work or traveling or just working in their hometown and getting work experience 
but in a sense, taking a break from academics um, before and really helping explore who you are um, mm -hmm. and maybe doing more experiential learning so that then the idea is when you go back to the classroom and to get a degree, you just have more perspective on life. And I, I think I was young when I graduated high school. I was 17. I was, you know, a mediocre student and I went right on to college and I was a mediocre student there too. And I didn't, um, you know, I, I just needed more life experience. And I think I would have benefited from college if I had done a gap year in between. Year. Yeah. So, um, so that's different than the Peace Corps. You actually can't apply to the Peace Corps unless you have a four-year degree. So you couldn't oh. do Peace Corps as a gap year, but there's plenty of other things. There's AmeriCorps. There's, you know, it's that same idea of learning about other people, other cultures, you know, gaining a perspective on life, learning about yourself, mm -hmm. not necessarily just <laughs> sitting in the classroom and turning in assignments and mm -hmm. listening to lectures. So. Um, yeah. Very nice. It, it sounds like a very good idea. Um, it's time for us to switch now because I have to let you go in a few minutes. When was a moment in your life when you decided that saying no was a much better decision? Yeah, that, that was a hard one for me to, to think about because I was, you know, I, I don't think I say no a lot. I think I say yes more than no. Mm -hmm. um, but when we had, we've, we've moved around a lot um, and we had just moved to Ithaca in 2017. Um, we had moved here uh, for David's job at Ithaca College. So I was a trailing spouse, um, which, you know, for me, it was exciting because I, I enjoy change. I have a lot of different interests. I have a very wide skill set. I've had you know, over 30 jobs in my life. So I've, wow. I was excited to kind of explore what some other possibilities were going to be professionally for me. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that has really served me well is volunteering um, for different things in my community that has really connected me and led to work opportunities. So when we moved here in 2017, I was excited to get back into skiing. Um, we had moved from Ohio where there was no, no ski areas near, near me. And skiing for me wasn't just recreational. It was professional as well, because I teach adaptive skiing, um, for people with disabilities. And so Greek peak is our little local mountain. So I got involved quickly with their adaptive ski program and I was volunteering with them. And then they quickly realized that I was a recreational therapist and I had, I had developed and founded a an accessible recreation program in New Hampshire. And so they, the current director of the program was um, ready to retire. So they were looking to hire a new director and they really were trying to uh, get me into that position. Um, they, they were asking me if I would take that role on. And I had to um, really dig deep and figure out if that was the right move for me. I mean, I had the experience, I had the skill set, but I also knew how draining that is when you're in recreation as a profession. 
a lot of your time is evenings and weekends. And I have three children. And so maintaining that work-life balance um, is, is hard when you're working when everybody else is off. Mm -hmm. um, so, and it was also a, a role that I know it, so it's seasonal work and seasonal work is intense because when you're in season, it takes it all away mm -hmm. from you. And then, you know, you're out of season and it's like done. And then you're recovering. And in my case, I'm into the next season, which is usually water sports or biking is what I'm currently um, teaching. But so I had to, I was tempted to take that job, but I had to say no um, when I really you know, evaluated how, if it would allow me to maintain that work-life balance. And um, so it was hard. It was hard to say no, because I, I knew the program needed uh, a strong leader. And so I continued to volunteer with the program um, and they're, they've been in flux with leadership and they had somebody who didn't have any experience, um, had the time to give but not really the leadership skills and experience. And so, you know, it was hard for me to know that my no answer, you know, resulted in maybe not the strongest um, programming, but <laughs> that's, that's life. You know, you really do have to, 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 I guess, uh, answer based on your own um, needs and your own family's needs. And so, yeah, mm -hmm. in this case, I had to not really focus as much on what the program needed, but more what, what I needed. Um, now I need to go back a little bit because I'm so curious. You mentioned you've had 30, <laughs> around 30 jobs in your career. And that for our generation is, it's still not the case. It's still it's it's more common nowadays that kids think of not being in the same company for years that they mm -hmm. switch jobs. So what made you have so many different jobs? Why did that happen to you? And the second question is: Did you make sure you left systems in place for the things you did in those thirty places? <laughs> Yeah, that's, oh gosh. Well, um, some of the jobs were, you know, when I was young, it was things like, um, you know, getting my water safety instructor and teaching swim lessons or lifeguarding. And so in those cases, I didn't really need to think about sustainability. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, so what happened? Why did I have so many jobs? I think one thing that happened is I realized that I really, my strongest style of learning was experiential. For me, working and creating systems and, you know, taking ideas and, and building them and developing them into something that um, filled a need in the community, um, I was really driven by that and really good at that. And I didn't, know anything about what experiential learning was until I got to college and found um, the field of recreational therapy and, and saw that, wow, okay, now this is tapping into my strengths. Mm -hmm. I was always an athlete and a physical person and a creative person, but I didn't realize how much learning can happen in those, um, in those environments. I thought 
education and learning was just in the classroom. So for me, I think I was doing that by taking on different jobs and embracing change and exploring different areas. Um, and I started to realize how much I learned from each of my jobs, whether it be how to interact with people, how to get along with somebody that maybe we really butted heads, but, you know, and I, and I just started realizing, wow, every job I'm like learning something either about myself or something that I can take and bring to another position or hard skills on, you know, whitewater kayaking or how to adapt a climbing wall for somebody who is blind or, you know, so it was like just super valuable for me in my, in my professional life, in my work life to be learning from those jobs. So I think that's probably what added. And a lot of the jobs were concurrent for me. Like I didn't go one full-time job to another full-time job. I right now work three jobs. And so, oh. yeah, so that that's worked for me because it creates flexibility for me, for mm -hmm. my family. Um, and it allows me to, you know, keep my hands in a few different things. Mm -hmm. uh, so going back to the no, and we have a few minutes left. Yeah. So going back to the no, you said no to the opportunity at Greek Peak. Mm -hmm. What was your next yes after that? So what was the thing that you were looking for that you said, hmm, this is the right fit? Well, right now, so I was also working, so I was volunteering there and I was working as an after-school counselor um, at Fall Creek Elementary because my kids were there and the waiting list was so long that the only way I could get them in was to become a counselor. So I kind of worked the systems a little bit and, <laughs> and really like my focus right now, my primary focus is my family. So I find, so I said yes to the after-school program, but that's not a professional job. It didn't, I didn't need my master's degree for that, but it made sense for me family-wise. Um, so I said yes to that. I said yes to, um, I work at Bike Walk Tompkins, which is a local nonprofit organization. Oh, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. And so I said yes to a contractor um, position there where I am developing their education program. We're working on getting bike education into all the elementary and middle schools. I also teach um, adults uh, how to uh, bike ride, either coming back from not riding for years. Um, and I kind of bring my uh, skill set where I can look and say, okay, we have options for adaptive equipment if somebody has balance issues um, and, you know, just doesn't want to risk riding two wheels, we could get them into a bike that makes sense for them and their lifestyle and their goals. Um, so, yeah, so I said yes to Bike Walk Tompkins. And I also said yes to an organization called Open the Lid, which teaches online um, classes for people uh, with neurodiversity. Um, and so... They, they're people who may be on the autism spectrum, have Down syndrome, um, have mental health um, challenges, and we come together as a community online, and, and I teach a class once a week um, where we work on social skills through um, a dance party. Oh! <laughs> so, yeah, so I, yeah, so I've said yes to a lot more than I've said no to, but. Um. That's why it was so hard for you to come up with your no. 
Yes. Yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Before we finish, I'm very curious to find out what is the system that you are creating within your family that you hope stays in place when your once your kids um, go out into the world. Ooh, gosh, let me think about that. This system, um, what comes to the forefront of my mind when you when you talk about that, and I don't know if it's a system, but it's more of a, a parenting approach that I've. I adopted very early. I mean, it was before I even had three kids. It was Eli was three and we were about to have Isaac. And I, something switched to me where I realized that one of the best things I could do for my kids is allow them independence at an early age and appropriate to their age, but more independence than I might be comfortable with. Um, as a parent, you know, we tend to, as parents want to hover over our kids and do for our kids and keep them safe and not see them struggle. And so I consciously, as my kids grow and enter different phases of their life, try to be aware of giving them, putting a lot more, um, you know, responsibility on their plates and and having them take that independence and those, you know, even little opportunities to make the decision on their own, wear whatever. I've never dressed my kids because <laughs> I, I just, I let go of that. I'm like, I don't, I can't have those battles. And I want them to have that opportunity to find who they are and create their own person. Um, so I think the system of really, giving autonomy and ownership and independence to my kids has, has been, um, you know, at the forefront and, and creating opportunities, you know, for themselves and, and taking advantage of, of those opportunities, recognizing when there's opportunities and not being afraid to really diversify their interests, not focus on one sport, but try every activity that you can so that when you're no longer in a position to be playing, you know, high school sports, you'll have skills in all these other and interest levels in all these other places. So really diversifying their, their interests and skills. What about the community mapping? Did you, did you teach them or have you taught them that? That is kind of, um, also very valuable, especially when you're a teenager, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I don't think officially I've I've really thought about, you know, having them explore, but I think that they do it just through like what we're encouraging. Um, so one of my kids, you know, when he uh, didn't make the soccer team, um, he had to step back and go, what else is available to me? What mm -hmm. are other opportunities I can see? And he ended up running for vice president of his class. He played unified soccer, which is a special Olympics um, division of sports where uh, athletes with and without disabilities play together and support each other. You know, mm -hmm. he ended up doing an acapella singing group. So like, 
I think organically it's happening. Um, I'm not like, okay, time to community map. Let's look at what are all the opportunities out there? What are all the possible networks? But I think that they are doing that. They, all, all three of them find um, work opportunities within our neighborhood for mowing lawns or babysitting. So it's, I think that they get it. Um, so mm -hmm. I must be working on it <laughs> subconsciously. <laughs> you should be very proud. Molly, um, it's time for me to let you go. Thank you so much for having come to What If I Say Yes. Uh, please send me pictures, images, whatever you would like to share with the audience regarding your yes or your yeses and your no. Um, thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you today. Oh, same. Thank you for doing this. This is a wonderful platform to share people's stories. I enjoyed listening to other people's stories and uh, I hope that you are able to continue. So congratulations on a wonderful, wonderful website and blog. Um, take care. Thank you, Molly. Yes. yes. Thank you Bye. for having me. Bye.